Welcome back to our study of Mark's Gospel. In this video, we're going to take a look at Mark chapter 14, and I'm just going to give you this as a heads up, okay? This is a long chapter, so we're going to be moving very quickly throughout it because although it is a really long chapter, um, there's just kind of a few things that I want to draw your attention to, so we'll just kind of take those uh, as they come. So let's dive right on in. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Okay, before we keep going, I, I want to go ahead and mention this. There's a few kind of interesting things right here. We already see uh, this is at the end of the gospel, okay? Things are, are really kind of coming to an end. We know that Jesus is going to be uh, arrested and they are going to be killing him. I mean, even verse 1 of this chapter is already talking about those things. They at first say in verse 2, not during the festival because they don't want to riot, but yet they end up finding out that the festival provides a pretty good opportunity for them, a pretty good cover for their evil, uh, the, their scheme of arresting and killing Jesus. So when we get to verse 3, we see we find out that he's uh, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. Uh, now, if Jesus is as he normally is, this Simon the leper, um, he didn't stay a leper for very long, not whenever he was in the presence of Jesus. I mean, it, it's an amazing thing about Jesus that if you tried to say that, you know, he touched someone who was unclean or that he was around people who were sinners, what you pretty well found is those people that Jesus was around, they no longer remained in that life of sin. Or if they were in an unclean state whenever he met them, spending time with him usually meant that they were clean again. In this case, the lepers would be made uh, clean. <clears throat> so him being in the home of Simon the leper, can't help but see that this is probably somebody who Jesus helped out along the way. And there's this woman here who has this expensive perfume. She has this pure nard that she wants to uh, be able to, to anoint Jesus with. And you probably already know the reaction, but let's notice it because this is, this is very important. And there's a lot of interesting things about this woman and about what Jesus says as well. Verses 4 through 11. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they were buked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me, uh, to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest, betrayed Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So when they were in Simon the leper's home, we see that this woman comes and she anoints Jesus. People have a problem with that. They said, why is this? Why are you wasting this? Now, it's a lot of money. OK, I mean, it really is. And we need to understand that and, and think about the expense that's going on right here. But Jesus tells them, leave her alone. 
He says in verse 7, that the poor you'll always have with you. Now, we do not need to read into this that Jesus is saying it's not important to take care of the poor. Okay, hear me out with this. Jesus most certainly cared about the poor. Okay, what Jesus is saying is in this time, in this occasion, Jesus's time was limited. I mean, after all, we don't have Jesus here with us today. You know, not in the same way, not physically speaking. And they were soon, just in a few days after this, they weren't going to have him there either. Now, they didn't exactly get this, but, you know, he even kind of hints at this in verse 8. He said, well, well, she anointed me. She was preparing my body for burial. We kind of know that, uh, uh, fast forward a little bit, we'll get to this eventually, but you know that on the first day of the week, uh, they came to anoint the body of Jesus because uh, apparently they, they did part of the process but didn't quite finish everything that they wanted to do, so they had to wait till after the Sabbath, and then they went back to the tomb, and they found out that he had risen from the dead. Well, this woman, she is actually kind of anointing his body and preparing it beforehand for this burial. Uh, so kind of some interesting thing that Jesus is already uh, kind of hinting at. And he constantly is, is dropping all of these hints that the disciples should have been able to pick up on. And maybe some of them did. But, you know, for the most part, they still didn't want to hear this. They, they, didn't, they didn't understand how this fit in with what they had in mind. But this does fit in with what Jesus has in mind. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows people are plotting to arrest him. And they're plotting to kill him. And we see that what this woman does, this act of kindness, this wonderful act of kindness, it's also connected with the gospel. He says that whenever the gospel is proclaimed, what she has done is going to be told as well in memory of her. So I want you to maybe kind of think about what does this example teach us? You know, what can we learn from this woman? Why is it that Jesus made sure this part of the gospel is still spread? You know, th this part of the story is still spread whenever the gospel message is proclaimed. I think there's a lot for us to learn through this. And I think that maybe, you know, with time and, and study, we can learn more and more about it. But right here we see the plot is already taking place. People are already making plans to arrest Jesus. And Judas Iscariot is the one who he's going to betray Jesus. And he's already stepping up and he's, he's going ahead with it. Going ahead with what he had planned. Verses 12 through 16. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house uh, he enters. The teacher asked, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. Jesus has something else in mind that he wants to do with his disciples before leaving them, and that is to celebrate this, this festival of the unleavened bread, this Passover festival with his disciples. Now, it's not by accident that you see so many times about statements about Passover. They're making these 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 preparations for how they're going to celebrate Passover. And also in verse 12, this little bitty bit of information that says when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. Now, we as readers know this because, you know, we, we know the gospel. Uh, they were living it, so they didn't kind of maybe see all of these hints along the way. But this is another hint that's telling us Jesus is going to be this sacrifice. 
He is going to be God's lamb, you know, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's not by accident as well that, that Jesus is actually crucified. He is sacrificed the same time that this Passover lamb is supposed to be sacrificed. All of this is hinting at what Jesus did for us on the cross, that his blood is what covers us and allows death to pass over us, just like the original uh, Passover celebration. And Jesus also takes some of the, the elements of those original Passover celebrations and he gives them new meaning because all things are going to have new meaning through Jesus Christ. That's what he's preparing his disciples for right here. And they make, uh, they, they prepare everything uh, for him. Everything is set in place. And this is what happens whenever they have this Passover meal together. Verses 17 through 21. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened. And one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Now this passage right here tells us it's one of these 12. One of these 12, is, uh, 12 men are going to betray Jesus. We know it's Judas Iscariot. We know that that, that was already stated just a few verses earlier that, Jesus, uh, that Judas was going to betray Jesus and that he's already in the process of doing these things. He's already looking for these opportunities and he's found an opportunity. And he's, he's going to see to it that his plan is carried out. But Jesus right here, he makes mention that it's one of these 12 it's someone who is so close to him that they're eating a meal together. You know, that, that's a sign of fellowship. But it's not even just that they're eating a meal and at opposite ends of the table. No, this one who's going to betray Jesus is so close that they are, they're eating from the same, uh, you know, that they're dipping their bread into the same bowl. Um, now, I, I'm not kind of used to, to eating meals like this and kind of dipping bread in things or, or, or whatever. But, you know, I guess one thing that I, I kind of think about is, when you go to, uh, and I don't know, maybe this, this helps you or, or whatnot, but whenever you go out to eat at the Mexican restaurant, okay, so much of the time what happens at, at Mexican, Mexican restaurants is you're brought a bowl of salsa, right? And then you have those chips and, and stuff, and then you, you don't necessarily share salsa with the person at the other end of the table. You share it with the one who's right there with you. Well, I can't help but think that this is the same type of thing that Jesus is saying. It's somebody who is very close to him. It's one of those 12. And it's not just one of those 12 even, it's one of those who's like really, really, really close to him. After all, you know, we do tend to have a habit of sitting near those people that, that we are closest to. And Jesus right here is sitting so close to, to them that they're sharing this meal together. They're, they're using some of the same dishes. This is how close, this shows us how how much this this hurts Jesus because someone who is so close to him like this is going to betray him but at this meal Jesus takes this opportunity to teach his disciples and to prepare them for something in the future that's why we read in verses 22 through 26 while they were eating Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying take take it this is my body then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the, of the covenant, which is poured out 
for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the new meaning. This bread represents the body of Jesus. This cup, contents of it, you know, it represents the blood of Jesus. You all recognize this. We take of this on a weekly basis, don't we? Every single Sunday morning, uh, we, we gather together and we partake of bread and we partake of, of the cup. And we are reminded that it's a, it's a symbol of the body and the blood of Jesus. This is part of this new covenant, this blood of the covenant that Jesus uh, poured out for many so that we can have this forgiveness of sins. He is our Passover lamb, our sacrifice, the one that takes away the sin of the world. I think I've kind of said it enough different ways. You, you know what we're looking at here. And you know this because, you know, most of you have, have taken part in this meal. You know, not the very first meal, of course. We take part in this other one that Jesus talks about drinking from this fruit of the vine. When I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I believe what Jesus is talking about right there is that what we do on a weekly basis, we are, are taking this communion, not just with those people around us, but we're also taking communion with Jesus Christ. We are remembering this sacrifice and he is there in our midst. This is what he wanted his disciples to hold on to, to remember him by. There's still more that takes place on this night though. Verses 27 through 31. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. This passage right here, it was some of these things that, that the scriptures spoke about. They spoke about how that, that the shepherd was going to be struck and the sheep were going to scatter. And that's what happened whenever Jesus Christ, our shepherd, was, was struck. Whenever he was struck, the sheep, they scattered, at least for a time. They did all fall away. But then he says in verse 28, but after I've risen, things are going to be different. And they were. We see this boldness that they come before Jesus and they, they boldly proclaim the, the gospel message on the day of Pentecost, don't they? They've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. They've been given this task to go and openly proclaim, boldly proclaim the gospel message. Sometimes we look at this passage and, you know, we, we kind of give, give Peter a little bit harder of a time than what he really deserved. Because, yes, we say that Peter denied our Lord three times. But I want to remind you of something that the scriptures tell us. That in verse 31, yes, Peter did say he insisted emphatically, as the NIV says, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. That's what he said. But notice the last phrase. And all the others said the same. Everybody's in agreement, but you know what? They all denied him. Every single one of them denied him at one point or another, and, and they fled from him during his, his kind of dark moments, during the, that difficult time. So we sometimes kind of pin too much, I think, on Peter, whenever really it was these other disciples too. They're humans. They have some of the same struggles that you and I have as well. But through Jesus Christ, we can't have hope. 
And whenever we recognize that once he is risen from the dead, that changes everything. It changes everything for us, it changed everything for his disciples as well. Now, he hasn't died just yet. We haven't got to that in the story, but we've seen so many hints at it. And we see that, that Jesus knows it. And Jesus, after he spent time with his own disciples and kind of spoke to them and prepared them for that moment, now he wants to spend time with his heavenly father. And this is whenever they go to the garden of Gethsemane. Verses 32 through 36. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began uh, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is Jesus's prayer. He tells them to stay here and keep watch. Now, you know, technically, uh, and I don't know that we really bring this out a lot of times, but that was actually kind of part of what they were supposed to do already on the uh, the Passover celebration, is that they were supposed to be reminded of, of that night that they stayed up and they kept watch. And that's what they were supposed to do whenever they kind of reenacted that night. So they were already supposed to be doing this, but, you know, they fall asleep. You know, you, you probably... Uh, have kind of experienced something like that you know it's it's uh you know maybe you can relate with that as whenever we um, bring in the new year so to speak you know the new year's eve it's customary for us to try to stay awake until 12 and then you know we we uh we have a celebration and then you know maybe right after that we you know we go to bed or whatever they had some same type of, of ritual that they would do here and these guys for whatever reason i mean they're tired and they fall asleep you know that's probably happened to you before too and they don't understand just how important this night is. Jesus gets it though. Jesus understands what's going to be taking place. And he prays to our Heavenly Father. He actually says here in verse 36, Abba, Father. Now, as far as we can tell, this is something that was kind of unique to Jesus to, to call his Father this Abba, Father, and to have this closeness uh, in, in this connection with the prayer. And uh, also, a lot of times for Jewish people, you know, it was okay to call God our Father. You know, talk about how He is He is the Father of all of us. But to say my Father, that's something that you typically didn't do. In fact, that would kind of raise up some some red flags. But to call Jesus for Jesus to call His Father Abba Father, now that raised up a lot. And we see this this closeness that Jesus had with His heavenly Father, with our heavenly Father. And after this time, what we start to see is is Christians pick up on this and they start to carry this over into their own prayer life. And it was kind of unique uh, among them. So when Jesus prays to his father, he says, everything is possible for you. We know that as well. He says, take this cup for me. That cup has to do with the suffering. You know, so many times cup, it has to do with the, the suffering of what uh, what's about to take place. And in this case, Jesus knows. But then he says, not what I will, but what you will. And we know that the will of God was was not to take that cup away, but to help Jesus to get through this time. That's why we continue to read, and, and this is what we find. Verses 37 through 42. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? 
Watch and pray so that you will not fall into, into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Verses 43 through 52 now. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come at me with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you do not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, having leaving his garment behind. This passage, it tells us about what's happening. And it also kind of shows us all everything that was happening just right there in the moment. I mean, these, these things are just happening so fast to everybody who's who's right there and, and seeing that, Jesus just gets arrested. I, I mean, that, that's not supposed to happen, right? I mean, that's what the disciples are thinking. They just are shocked at what's going on. And even Jesus, he turns to them and he says, look, am I leading some rebellion? He says that in verse 48. Well, you know, why are they coming at him with swords and clubs? He hasn't displayed any force at all against them. And he's been teaching all the time in their temple courts. They didn't arrest him then. But they arrested him right here, right now, under these circumstances. And if you keep reading, what you're going to find is they they don't want a fair trial for Jesus. No, they, they want him dead. And they're stacking their deck in order to make sure that that happens. And that eventually does happen. Not because of their will, but because this is the, the will of God. God allows these things to happen because he has a plan. This is how Jesus is going to, to conquer death. And by the way, this this uh, uh, kind of weird story that we get in the last two verses here about this this young man who who uh, only had that garment and then that garment was taken away. I believe what this tells us is that it shows us how quickly all these things happen. You know, you you don't just leave your clothes behind and run off unless you're you're fearing for your life. If you're fearing for your life and and uncertain about what's going on, you know, you might do any any types of thing, leave whatever and in everything behind. That's the moment that they all are finding themselves in. That's why I think that this little bit of information is included in this passage. And they, with this, they, they arrest Jesus. And then they take him to trial, but it's not a fair trial, like I already mentioned. Verses 53 through 59. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warned himself to fire. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. 
Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. So we see that they're really, they're, they're grasping at straws here. They're trying to find out some way to pin something or another on Jesus. And then we see some people who are even uh, willing to, uh, you know, they, they couldn't find the proper evidence. Okay, couldn't find any evidence. So then they look to people who are falsifying uh, this evidence. They give false testimony, but yet even the false testimony didn't agree. So, I mean, you know, if this goes to kind of show you um, in many ways how good the legal system of, of the Jewish people were, you know, this is a trial that they are trying to condemn Jesus and they're finding it difficult to do so because they can't get anybody's statements to agree. This goes back to why the law of Moses required the testimony of two or three witnesses. They couldn't get that here at this trial. In fact, they never get it at this trial. This is what they finally pin on Jesus. Verses 60 through 65. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. So this is what they finally pin on him. They ask him, are you the Messiah? And he answers with a statement that's, that's really a quote. See, his answer is in verse 62, but it's really kind of a, a quotation, uh, at least a, a mention about what was already stated in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. You can, you know, if you're not familiar with that, you might want to, you know, pause the video and go look that up. But, but in that passage, what we see is that God is sitting on his throne. But then there's one like the Son of Man who comes and, and who also sits on a throne as well. And then there's these clouds that are mentioned. So all of these things that Jesus is mentioning, we find out that they go back to Daniel 7. And there in Daniel 7, what Daniel sees is the Son of Man is actually worshipped. That's why they are able to say, why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. That's what they say in verse 64. Because the way that Jesus set it up is he is saying that he is that son of man from Daniel 7. He is the one that people are going to worship. That's why they say, well, this is blasphemy. You know, and then they can all agree at least on that. And I mean, it, it, it's still, I mean, none of this is really a, a good trial. It most certainly is stacked in, in their favor and most certainly against Jesus. And they finally just take him away. And they start this process. They, they've arrested him. Now they're beating him. And it only just continues to get worse and worse as they go. Verses 66 through 72. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with the Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, uh, 
she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken in, Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. So this, we, we kind of have the... Uh, this story, it's focused on Peter now, and we see that, that how he turns his back on Jesus, and we see the fulfillment of Jesus' own words there, that, that Peter has, has denied him. He's denied him three times already. And, you know, every time he just says, look, I don't, I don't know this Jesus that you're talking about. I don't know the man. I'm not connected with him. And, and he says those things. And, and we see that he finally gets it, and it, it all clicks in verse 72. And then he remembers the words of Jesus, and he broke down and he wept. But the trial of Jesus is not over. What's going to be done to Jesus is not all finished just yet. We're still going to be picking back up in the next chapter and reading more and more about what happened. But right here, Peter understands the seriousness of it. He doesn't want what's happening to Jesus to happen to him. He's trying to save his own skin here. And he's going so far as to deny Jesus. Now, whenever we fast forward the story, we see the mercy of Jesus. And we see that after Jesus is raised up from the dead, he has a conversation with Peter. And he restores Peter and gives him back his, his honor, even though he had done a shameful thing right here. That's how great the mercy of Jesus is. We need to understand what Jesus is doing here. It's part of the plan of God. It's to take away the sin of the world. That's why the Passover lamb, our Jesus Christ, was, was sacrificed for us. So that his blood will cover us and death itself will not have a hold on us. We will pick back up next week and we'll see even more about this trial, the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus.